If you would, you might go ahead and start turning on over towards Daniel chapter 1. Daniel. We're going to go back and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the captivity of God's people uh, within the nation of Babylon. And as we go back and begin to look at the account here with Daniel, and we can notice some traits within that account that we still see taking place today within society. And that's why you'll see the title there, The Babylonian Pattern. It'll make sense as we begin to work through this. But let me go back before we actually get into Daniel chapter 1, and let me begin to summarize a little bit about the account here with Daniel. Uh, Daniel, as we know, was taken into captivity there in Babylon right around 605 B.C. He was actually selected as uh, one of a number of men that were going to be placed into the service of King Nebuchadnezzar there in Babylon, and that was due to their wisdom and to their knowledge. King Nebuchadnezzar, as he chose these men that they had taken into captivity there from the nation of Israel, he sets out on a plan uh, to change these men into servants of Babylon. And so he wanted to direct their, their learning, their ways of life. He wanted to, in essence, really direct everything about them. And the goal was, yes, we took you out of the nation of Israel, but we are going to make you profitable for the nation of Babylon. Now you may say, uh, how long did this take? Well, it was a multiple year process. At the end of the training, again, at the end of this training that these men were going through, the idea was they wouldn't see themselves as Jews, but they would have assimilated into the Babylonian culture. That was his goal. In essence, to summarize it, forget your Jewish ways, forget your Jewish God, Accept the nation of Babylon, consider yourself a Babylonian, and be of service to the king. Now you may say, what exactly was Babylon like? Was this really that bad of a place? Well, if you go back and do your research, you'll find in 612 through 320 B.C., Babylon was the largest city in the world. It had about 200,000 people. The city was actually saturated uh, with sex, both in private, both in public. Uh, it was part of the religious worship at the time there even within the temple we find that homosexuality and fornication were both uh, prominent they had no social stigma uh, and it was practiced openly i wish i could go back and give you more detail but that's about as good as i can do and keep it within the sermon it was it was a very it was a lot like our society today i'll just say that but as you begin to look at this city and their practices, we learned that the Babylonians pretty much would tolerate just about anything. However, they were guided by written law. They had the, uh, the Hammurabi Code of 200 written rules. And so as you take Daniel and his friends, and we'll begin to cover that here in a minute, you literally have them living in foreign territory, both physically and spiritually and culturally during this captivity. And the king... Uh, the king really wants them to just give up their ways of life. They want them to accept the idea that you're now Babylonians. You're not Jews anymore. And again, this is going to take a, a number of years as they try to assimilate them, them into this. He tried to change everything, including their, their manner of eating, which for a lot of people you'd say, well, it's not a big deal. You know, he's trying to change what I eat. They were governed by the law of Moses for dietary law. And so as you begin to read through this and you begin to see what it is that's taking place, you see that the king has an agenda. 
It is to literally change not only what they do and what they think, but he wants to change how they even think about themselves. Daniel realizes exactly what's taking place here. Daniel sees it for what it is. He recognized that at the core of Nebuchadnezzar's plan was the hope that Daniel and his friends were going to turn from their faith in God, that they would, in essence, quit looking at themselves as Israelites who are now in the city of Babylon, but they would now begin to look at themselves as Babylonians. Daniel sees exactly what is taking place. Now, Daniel has a steadfastness that, unfortunately, many of the Jews around him did not. And let me remind you of something real quick before we actually get into our text. When Cyrus finally gives the, de the decree to allow the Jews to go back to the nation of Israel, we know based off uh, census and, and historical records, there were about 80,000 Jews who decided to stay in Babylon. Now, in the case of some, such as Daniel, they may have been too old. But the truth of the matter is, is that many of them really had, had converted to the Babylonian culture. They ceased to look at themselves as Jews from the nation of Israel. They began to look at themselves, really within, we're talking one generation, two generations, they began to look at themselves as Babylonians. And so as we begin to look here at the account with Daniel, we see how Daniel's steadfastness really begins to affect others around him, including the king. And there's a lot as we begin to go through the account here with Daniel that is applicable to us. So let's begin to go over and read Daniel. We're going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Daniel 1, verses 1 through 8. Follow along with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans." And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and unto Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, uh, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. There's probably a whole lot you miss as we begin to look there in the very first chapter of the book of Daniel. What we find is, as Daniel is living here within this nation of Babylon, and it is a rapidly changing environment for him. It's very scary. And as a matter of fact, the, the, the goal of the world, and we find it taking place here in the Babylonian account, is to change those who are followers of God and to change what it is that they believe and what it is that they practice. And if we won't change, what they want is for us to at least tolerate 
what it is that they believe and what it is that they practice. Daniel lived in an environment like this. Daniel lives there and they are slowly trying to get him to uh, accept both ungodly and immoral things that are taking place. But what we actually find happen is, is, is Daniel actually becomes the change agent to those around him as he stays steadfast to the Word of God. Now you may say, how exactly does he do that? That is a, that's a valid question, and I think it goes back to our Bible study this morning as we were talking about we are constantly going to be around people in this world who don't believe like us, they don't think like us, but they want us to think like them. We have to understand what it is that Daniel did as he could impact those around him so that we can do the same and not be changed. And you may be sitting here saying, that's not really the goal of the world around us. I'm going to prove to you that it is before we, we finish today. But let's start off and let's look at what it is that Daniel did. Let's start talking first about his unmovable foundation. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody that we have to have an unmovable foundation. If you do not have an unmovable foundation, you can't change the world. The world will change you. That's a matter of fact. Daniel did have an unmovable foundation. Notice what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 57. He says, But thanks be to God, which giveth, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, it is important as we begin to talk about as followers of God why we need to have this unmovable foundation. But I want you to notice what the Hebrews writer wrote. And this isn't normally the passage you would go to, but it makes sense if you think about it. Listen to Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom... It's a whole other sermon, but we're talking about the church here. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Because the kingdom of God cannot be moved neither shall his followers. We need to have that same mindset that Daniel had, even within the church. Our foundation is based on the very fact that we both know and understand what it is that God expects of us, and we will do it. That's the idea behind reverence and godly fear that supports this unmovable foundation. Daniel had that, but this doesn't stop King Nebuchadnezzar. As a matter of fact, let's go over to Daniel 1, verses 6 through 8. Daniel 1, verses 6 through 8. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, I touched on this for just a second as we began to open. There's a lot going on here in Daniel chapter 1. But in Daniel chapter 1, we find that the king has set out to change a whole bunch of things, things about these young men. One, he wants to change the way in which they think, verse 4. He wants them to learn a new language. He wants them to learn new literature. Verse 5, he wants them to literally change their way of living. Right? He wants to change their diet. And again, 
you begin to look at that and say, well, why is that a big deal? Their diet represented more than just the things that they ate. Their diet consisted of things that were mandated through the law of Moses. Okay, Verse 7, and this is important. He wants to change their focus on God. Now, this is very unusual, and I think most people, when they sit and think about it, they probably have never considered this. He changes their names. There's been a lot of discussion about the significance of their Jewish names. And I won't go back into all of the different meanings of their names. But what you find is, is if you begin to go back and study the names of, of Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, you learn that all of their names had something to do with the one true God, the God of the nation of Israel. And what does the Babylonian king do? He changes their names, and he changes their names to Babylonian names. But not only does he change their name to Babylonian names, all of the Babylonian names that he gives them have to do with their pagan gods. Let that sink in for a second. I am, I am removing your name, which emphasizes and focuses on the one true God, and we're replacing your name with Babylonian names, which reject the idea of a one true God and actually promote and refer to the pagan gods. Guys, this is, not, this is not accidental. This is forced, manipulated assimilation. You guys ever heard someone say, if you say something often enough, people eventually will they'll, they'll begin to believe it? Well, your name no longer that you used to be called, which is uh, uh, referring to the one true God, you're not going to be called that anymore. Your name that you're going to go by now is going to identify you with pagan gods. And again, you say, well, is, is that really... Was that intentional? Of course it was. He's trying to change everything about these young men. Remember, he's trying to get them, forget the nation of Israel, forget that you're a Jew, you assimilate into the Babylonian culture. It's more than a name. He is literally trying to replace their God with false gods. He is doing this through forced manipulation. Okay? That's his true, that's his true goal. It's literally to change their source of worship. He's trying to indoctrinate them in every way that he can. And you may say, well, that's, that sounds about like the Babylonian culture. Guys, that's, that's our culture. That is our culture. Our culture will manipulate, and many of us, we see it. But you know who don't? The younger ones, the littler ones. They don't see the forced manipulation of assimilation into accepting culture. Daniel realizes exactly what the king is trying to do. He understands it, and he says... I'm convicted to not do that. He wants to remain true to the one God. He says, I'm not going to defile myself. Don't think for a second Daniel didn't see what was taking place here. He understands wholeheartedly what is taking place. Every one of us has to get to the point where we have the same type of an outlook as Daniel has, where we realize there are absolutes. There are things we cannot go beyond. And that's what Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself. He realized there was a point of absolutes regarding one's obligation to God. And he says, I'm not going to do that. And so, like Daniel, we have, to, we have to purpose within our heart. There is a line which we cannot go beyond. Now, if you don't know where that line is, that's a whole other sermon. But it's right here within our New Testament for us as Christians. And again, where exactly do we find those convictions? Well, let me read the Isaiah 48, because we find them in God's Word. We live in a changing world, but God's Word does not change. Isaiah 48, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So, we know for a fact God's word is not going to change. 
If we believe it's inspired, we can't allow those around us to cause us, to trick us, or to force us uh, to change and be something different than what the follower of God is supposed to be. That's what they're trying to do to Daniel and his friends. Again, Daniel sees it. Daniel understands exactly, and he has an unmovable foundation. He says, I'm not going to do that. Notice his unwavering convictions. Along with convictions, which Daniel had, he then has to have the strength and the courage to stand by those convictions. A lot of people have convictions, but they don't have the strength or the power to stand up for them. Daniel does. He has convictions, but he's got to be strong enough to stand up and to speak up. Think how hard it was for Daniel to go up and to say, we don't want to do this. Please permit us to not do this. Right? He had to stand up for his beliefs and ask that not only him, but that all of his friends not be forced to accept the king's conditions. Now, for many of us, as you begin to look at this, this is a really dangerous situation. He is literally asking to disobey, for permission to disobey the king. He has to literally ask for that. He has to show up and pray when he's told you're not supposed to be doing that. He's still going to do it. And these things were not like matters of embarrassment like we have today where you're out in public and you pray before you eat and you're embarrassed because everybody's looking at you. That's not what's going on here with Daniel. These are not matters of embarrassment. These are potential death sentences. You don't just defy the king and expect to walk away with it. But Daniel has convictions, and he's not going to waver. We learn a lot about Daniel. Notice what we find very similar that Paul writes, or that um, we, we have regarding Paul in Acts 25.11, written by Luke. Acts 25.11, Paul says, For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal to Caesar. What's Paul say? I didn't do anything worthy of death. But if I had, I would accept the death penalty. Daniel and Paul have a very similar idea here or mindset. Both of them are going to remain faithful no matter what. Even if that means I may get killed for my faith. We certainly see that with Daniel, and we also see it with Paul. Both of them had unwavering convictions, and it wasn't just Daniel. We find the same from his friends also, but we find that quite often throughout our scriptures. But if we want to stop people from coming in and, in essence, causing us to abandon the faith through forced or manipulation of assimilation, we don't just have to have unmovable foundations. We have to have unwavering convictions. That means we've got to stand up when we don't want to stand up, when we feel uncomfortable. He also had edification and encouragement of the brethren. I want to point something out here, and I think this is very important. Did you notice that Daniel's determination to remain faithful to God was strengthened by other faithful followers of God? It's not just Daniel. We have Daniel and his, we have Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah and we actually learn over in Daniel 1, verses 9 through 21, that they purpose together. Let this sink in for just a second. They're going through the same situation, facing the same, the same struggles, the same trials, and it's in a situation like that where those who are dealing with the same thing you're dealing with, you come together because you have a common cause, a common, in essence, enemy, and you need to be strengthened and edified 
And that's what they're doing. They are strengthening one another. How do we work through this, get through this together? Well, they've already made, they've already made their mind up. We're not going to defile ourselves. So if we're going to die together, we're going to die together. But we're going to do it together. We're going to encourage one another. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. When you feel weak, when you feel like you can't do it, oftentimes it's having that other person going through the same situation who says, yes, we can do it. And that's what you've got going on here with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. They purpose together. We're in this together. And we find in multiple accounts, yep, it's all or nothing with them. Solomon wrote this in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, when the king comes, as we learn over, go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter 2. The king comes and he says, you know what? I had this dream last night. And I want you wise men to not only tell me what my dream was, but I also want you to interpret the dream for me. And none of the wise men could do it. And the king says, well, guess what? Uh, I'm just going to have you all killed. Let me, let me actually read to you from Daniel chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, because the, the Chaldeans here are pretty logical. The Chaldeans answered, this is Daniel 2, starting in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. They can't tell you your dream. He says, Therefore there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asketh such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it's a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling, or that word could be translated as presence, is not with flesh. For this cause the king was angry and very furious, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Guess who else is included in that? Daniel and all of his friends. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. What do the astrologers say? Well, there isn't anybody that could do this. It's an unreasonable request. There is nobody that could do this but the gods. And gods don't dwell with, with humans, so nobody can do this. But Daniel says, yeah, I think there's somebody who can. Daniel and his friends are confident in the one true God. Let's go on over to verses 16 through 18, chapter 2 there. Then Daniel went in, and he desired of the king that he would give him time, that he would show the king the interpretation. That's a pretty gutsy move right there, isn't it? He's confident. Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. I would have liked to have been involved in that conversation. Hey, I told the king we'd get this figured out for him. That they would desire mercies of God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel and his three friends, it says, desired the mercies of God. What are we talking about? They are praying together. They have come together in what appears to be an ungetoverable obstacle. And Daniel's confident. Our God can make this known to us. And so they gather together 
and they begin to pray. Do all of you here have friends like that? Let, let me help you out. Right now, ask yourself, this happens. Who do you call right now? Does everybody have a name in your mind? Who are you going to call right now to pray with? If you don't have a name in your mind, there's a problem. I'm just going to let you know. There ought to be somebody within your mind. Who can I call that can help me in this situation? Daniel had those that he could go to. I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people that come to church. I'm going to use the phrase like that. They come to church, but they're not part of the church. And when things like this happen, they don't have anybody to call. They've removed themselves to the point where they don't have someone they can rely on like Daniel here. Guys, we cannot allow ourselves within the church to ever get to that point. If you can't think of somebody right now in your name, I just want you to acknowledge there may be an issue. Have you removed yourself from the congregation? Are we not as close as we should be? There's a problem somewhere there. Daniel knows who he's going to call. And they get together and they begin to pray that they can have this issue resolved. Let me point something out as a side note here. I was thinking about this as I was studying. It's not surprising to me that when you call the Chaldeans and the astrologers over to interpret the king's dream, that, the, that they can't figure it out. And here's the reason why. When we go back and we look at the king's dream, which was a vision of the four kingdoms overpowered by another kingdom, which we're not going to go back and study that entire sermon, but it is prophetic and pointing towards the church. As we look at the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, uh, the Greeks and the Romans, then being overpowered by another kingdom, because we're talking about the church, we're talking about something that was always within the mind of God, it doesn't surprise me that those who are not followers of God couldn't figure this out or wouldn't have access to it. Listen to Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, we're talking about the Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Only a prophet of the true God would be able to have an understanding of what this actually means. These polytheistic, worshiping all different types of pagan gods, they're not going to have some understanding of what the true God has in mind when we're talking about the church. That was always within the mind of God. And only a prophet of God would have access to that. Listen to Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, "...unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The king's got a vision pertaining to this. And none of these pagan astrologers and wise men, they have no clue and they have no access to it. But who does? God's prophet. And they go to God in prayer. And I'll tell you what, as you begin to look here, these guys, they were, they were uh, encouraged one of another, and that is why they had the next point, confident hope. They had confident hope. Listen to what the Hebrews writers uh, records for us in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Most of us know this passage. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not seen. The Hebrews writer goes back really and he gives us a description here of grace and faith in two parts. First, you've got the substance of things hoped for. Faith and hope go together. You can't separate those two. Uh, there, the object of our hope is also the object of our faith. But the second part there is, is there is a confidence in the expectation that God will fulfill what it is that He said He would fulfill. Okay, And that's the faith that we have, not only recorded with, within the book of Daniel, within a number of passages, but listen to Psalm 5611. In God have I put my trust, I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Do we find that with the account with Daniel? You're going to get a good quote here from Daniel in a minute. <laughs> Daniel says, you know what? I have complete trust in my God. And he is not worried at all about what the king can do to him. And we find Paul wasn't either. Complete and confident hope. Facing certain death for refusing to worship the Babylonian gods and the golden image, Daniel and his friends have 100% confidence in God's protection. Listen to Daniel 3, 16 through 18. I would, have, I would have been quaking in my shoes. Daniel 3, starting in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. He's saying we put some thought into this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand. Let me pause. One way or another He will. He says, O king, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. In essence, here's what He's saying. We believe our God has the power uh, to, to protect us and to save us, but if, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do it, right? It would be much better to die faithful than, and still die than to give into this uh, and transgress the Word of God. So he said, well, we're not going to do it. Our God, could, our God can stop this. But if he won't, so be it. We're still not going to do it. But they are, they're confident in the plan of God. It's going to play out how it's going to play out, but they're also confident in the power of God. And by God's power, as we go back, we learn that they are saved from the fiery furnace. That, coupled with the miraculous that took place, literally changes the king. Listen to Daniel 3, verses 28 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's word and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. And therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other god that can deliver after this sort. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, it probably wasn't looking too good to them when they're getting ready to be thrown into the fiery furnace, and it wasn't. <laughs> but when they came out without any of their clothes being touched and without a hair on their head being burnt, and the king said, okay, yeah, there is no God that can do that. They do have the true God. And then he literally promotes them there within the province of 
Babylon. And I'll go back and say, um, besides Joseph, you don't have anybody who's risen to a rank higher than what we find taking place here with Daniel and his friends. He served through numerous kings, and he was there for a very long uh, time within the reign of these kings. But here's the thing. Daniel lives within a culture, and they are literally trying to get him to abandon his faith and his God. And they tried to do it in a bunch of different ways. They tried to manipulate. They tried to overteach. They tried to change. They tried to assimilate. And he understood exactly what was, what was taking place. Guys, that is just like the, the, the culture that surrounds us today. The Babylonian pattern that we begin to look at on how they are trying to change him and assimilate him, that is still taking place today. And again, you think about this culture that he lived in, open to all different forms of sensuality and lifestyles, except his. And they were open to every virtual type of religion that was out there, except his. And they were open to uh, a number of things, except for the things that Daniel and his friends believed. And then they began to lie about him, and they did whatever they could to undermine him and to portray his faith as dangerous, literally trying to get the king to believe, listen, these guys are dangerous even to you. They won't bow down to this image. They go out of their way to literally portray them, we're talking the followers of God, as being dangerous. Guys, the Babylonian pattern continues today. Let me give you a recent news article. I looked this up just yesterday. This is the actual title. Right-wing Christianity more dangerous to America than Islamic extremism, says scholar. Says scholar. You heard that right. Those who are fundamental Christians, and I have to kind of give you a definition of the word there because they try to, they try to manipulate people, but... Basically, what they're saying is, is if you're a fundamental Bible-believing Christian, you are more dangerous than an Islamic here within the United States. Whenever you find the phrase, they're right-wing, oftentimes it's used to mean someone who believes the Bible is inspired. And I'll actually show you that from the context. But here's what they're saying. If you are a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, you are more extreme and more dangerous to the United States than the nation of Islam. Let me quote a little bit more from the article. And remember the Babylonian pattern that we saw taking place with Daniel. Here's the rest of the quote from the article, part of it. In a recent TED Talk, Dr. Catherine Wallace from Northwestern University condemned the rise of hard-right Christian, here's the word, fundamentalism. What is that word, fundamentalism? People manipulate the word a little bit, but from the context, what you're going to find here is, is it means somebody who literally believes the Bible is inspired and they want to follow it. Okay? You'll see that in her own words. She went on to say that the religious right claims to represent the moral high ground in American culture, but look at what they advocate. Racism, sexism, and hate-mongering xenophobia. If you don't know what that means, it means that all Christians hate people from other nations. That's what xenophobia means. And she goes on and says, that's dangerous and it's not Christianity. Well, I'm a, I'll agree with her on that. That is not Christianity. I believe the Bible's inspired and I don't believe any of these things that the general class of Christianity was accused of. She then says this, and listen closely. Here is the Babylonian pattern. In order to combat fundamentalism, again, that means people who believe the Bible's inspired and they want to follow it, Across all religion, Wallace concluded, we must embrace our diversity, she said, 
We can more easily collaborate if believers and non-believers alike share a compelling story about moral values that we hold in common. Let me summarize for you real quick. Her true motive is the same as King Nebuchadnezzar's with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Do you know how I know that? Because she has already said that Christianity is dangerous. So I know for a fact she's not going to incorporate our Christian beliefs into what she believes. So, if her desire is not to embrace our Christian faith, how does she expect us to come together in unity? Well, she wants us to do the same thing that the king wanted Daniel and all of his friends to do. She wants us to forego and to reject our, our Bible-based beliefs and accept what culture, an ever-changing culture, says is normal. In her own words, she says this is being done in the name of diversity. But again, I want you guys to remember, she has said we are dangerous. She's not going to accept anything we believe. She wants to change our beliefs to their beliefs. That's the Babylonian pattern. That's exactly what they were trying to do to Daniel and his friends. And that's exactly what they're trying to do to us. That's what they're trying to do to our children. They're trying to get us to assimilate, to forget who we are, God's people, and become the world around us. The Babylonian pattern has been taking place forever, and it still continues to take place. Guys, we cannot change simply for the sake of diversity. We have to be aware and we have to be ready to stand like Daniel in the face of the Babylonian pattern. Listen to 1 John 2, 3-5, through 5, and I'm going to draw this to a close. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. When the Babylonian pattern tries to get us to assimilate, to accept, and to change all as they say in the name of diversity, our answer like Daniel is, no, we will not defile ourselves. The Babylonian pattern continues. We have to be ever mindful of that. Guys, the Babylonian pattern has even continued into what people are teaching regarding obedience to the gospel. You'll hear all kinds of things about how to be saved. If you're here, if you're watching this online, we want you to become a Christian just like us. It's very simple. If you want to become a Christian like they became a Christian in the first century, just do what they did in the first century. Go back and look through the book of Acts, take a pen, take a mark or something, write down all the conversion accounts, and you'll find there were people going around and they were teaching the gospel. That's how... Faith comes through believing, Hebrews 11.6. You understand who Jesus was, why He came, why He died on the cross, why the church was established. You have an understanding about sin and what sin does, the consequence of sin. And because you understand that and you now have a faith, you repent of your sins. We learned that very clearly is in every conversion account. We see that they heard the Word, they believed, they repented, they confessed Christ, and then very simply they were baptized by immersion in water for the remission of sins. And I didn't give you the verses that I normally do. If you're watching this online, if you've never heard that, write us, email us, call us, whatever, and we will sit down and study with you or we will find a faithful congregation in your area. That's what you find in every conversion account. When people did that, they were added to the church by the Lord Himself, Acts 2, verse 47. That's how you become a Christian. If anybody tells you anything different than that, you better ask for book, chapter, and verse.
That's how you become a Christian. That's the easy part. What's the hard part after that? Being willing to stand up and say, until I die, I'm not going to defile myself. But understanding that when I do, I can turn and repent of it and again be found faithful. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5. If you're here and there's a way that we can assist you in any way, you can come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.